Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Do you have a mate that doesn't seem great? Maybe their team is up, but they're still down. A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You Okay? Welcome to the conversations that could. I'm Dermot Brereton. This is a show where we talk to people from across the sporting landscape and discuss issues surrounding mental health, the struggles, the successes, and ways in which we can all support each other through the challenges that life presents. Our guest tonight is now retired rugby union champ Ben Alexander, who played a record 154 games for the ACT Brumbies, 72 tests for the Australian Wallabies, and he scored 25 tries along the way. I didn't think you were allowed to score them in your position. Ben's the first to admit that retirement has been a struggle. In fact, he shares his ups and downs via his blog and newsletter called Just That, Struggling. Ben Alexander, welcome to the conversations that could for Are You OK? Thanks, Jim. It's great to meet you. Excellent. Likewise. Well, this is the uncomfortable moment so that all us Melburnians who who know nothing except for a couple of sports, uh, we're very little uh, educated on rugby union. Tell us about your career. I've just outlined it. 72 tests for the Wallabies for over 10 years. An extraordinary feat to represent your country. You were a staple diet in the Australian team there for for that decade. Tell us about some of the highlights of your career so we understand just who we are speaking to. Yes, I guess I've been a sports lover uh, my whole life, even since a little kid. And I've actually got a dirty secret that I used to live in Melbourne for a few years as a kid. What? And my first... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for Dad's work. We were down there for the early 90s, very early 90s. And my first sporting memory of watching sport, believe it or not, is watching the 1991 AFL Grand Final oh, no. at my aunt, at my auntie's place in North Ballwood. I shit you not, Dermot. So it's, <laughs> it's a pleasure to meet you, mate, 30-odd years later. Wow. But um, that is that is at Auntie Jen and Uncle Bob Gillies, uh, North Ballwood. Uh, yeah, we were around their house. And that's my first memory of just watching sport. Uh, we moved, and then a few years later, we moved to the US. And if we think Australians love sport, uh, the Americans have got us covered, yeah. it's safe to say, and got into all the baseball, basketball. Uh, and then a few years later, we came back to Australia, uh, moved, uh, settled in Sydney, and some family friends convinced uh, my parents to let my brothers and I start playing rugby because uh, we're sport, sports uh, loving, well, sport, world sports mad, me and all my brothers. And, um, yeah, sort of. That's where rugby union uh, really became the staple of our weekends. Uh, the Wallabies were really that was sort of the golden era of Australian rugby. So the Wallabies were doing really well. Uh, they won two, uh, won uh, their second World Cup. So it was 
I sort of definitely got swept up in the the rugby sort of um, yeah the fever of rugby union uh, and went to a rugby playing school and yeah just played footy every weekend uh, and then when I graduated high school I didn't really know what I would do uh, I you know never thought I'd be good enough to play I made a few rep teams but it was never sort of a there was never a goal to become a professional I just never thought I could be good enough I just I just played every weekend and every year because I loved it and uh, moved to Canberra for university but just got into uh, a club down here called Uni Norths and kept playing. Uh, one thing led to another and then got into the Brumbies uh, a few years later and so the rest is history. There's a few bumps along the way. I nearly got kicked out at one one point for being um, out of the academy for being overweight and <laughs> turning up to training, academy training hungover. And I was, even for a front row, I was very overweight and uh, had to move in with my grandmother uh, who lived down here in Canberra. Lucky she was a she was part of Weight Watchers, so she helped me started eating better and um, got fit, got in and then uh, had one really good year. Brum signed me, um, broke my leg and missed a seat, lost my contract sort of because uh, it was a training contract. So broke my leg, that put me out for a year. Uh, and then I was sort of at a crossroad, but um, lucky there was an Australian Rugby Championship was on, played really well in that. And then Brumbies asked me back and then the rest was history. When you got to the Brumbies, did you expect that you would have the glittering career at the elite level, the Australian level, the world level that you did? Absolutely not, mate. And still, like, thinking about it still blows my mind a bit. Like, even though I was in Sydney, uh, going to school in Sydney, I still much preferred watching the Brumbies. They were the, uh, you know, they won two Super Rugby titles while I was still at school. Oh, sorry, one, they made a heap of finals. And I was lucky when I came to Canberra, I was in the crowd for the 2004 Super Rugby Grand Final. So I just sort of, I guess, naturally just gravitated towards the, the club. I loved the style of play, you know, the, with the George Gregans, the Larkhams, George Smith, Sterling Morlock, all these guys. I loved watching them play uh, while I was still at school. Uh, and to get to you know, be coached by Steve Larkham and to play with George Smith and Sterling Morlock uh, early in my career was just a, yeah, it was a, bit, it was a dream come true because those were the guys that I... Um, yeah, idolised watching on telly as a kid, but then to play a few years with them and to learn from them, for you know, two of the best players on the planet, uh, no doubt helped set me up to have the career that I did. Let's talk about your, your size. You mentioned you, you're overweight there in the early days. Uh, I've got you listed at 180... The AFL people will understand this. 189 centimetres, six, two and a half in the old, 120 kilos. That would put you as officially the heaviest player to ever play AFL at the elite level if you were 120 kilos. Was that playing weight? <laughs> yeah, my heaviest playing weight was 125. Wow. The, uh, there's a forward pack in France, a club that has a 1,000 kilogram forward pack. So that's wow. eight players, uh, La Rochelle. So that's 1,000 kilos. So they're, what's that, an average of 125 kilos of wow. forward. So that... Um, so yeah, I was on the heavier side, but always as a front rower, you're you're trying to get a yeah. bit heavier and bit. It would definitely get stronger. Um, but yeah, I still ended up in. Uh, we yeah we have fat club. I think I saw they banned that in the AFL. In rugby union, we've changed the word to sumo club. We had one as well. Front rowers that come back from. We had one, yeah, and it, and it was enjoyed the whole. Yeah, it was treated <laughs> with loving 
disdain, if you know what I mean. You're in the fat club. Your, your skin folds are on the wrong side, so you're in the fat club. But we kind of treat everyone who was in it, they almost raise the arms like they've just made the ton, you know, and, and they go, yes, I'm in the fat club. Because you can only go better from there as you start to train. Uh, it was, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember some of the punishments we used to have. We, one punishment was you used to have to, after a big day of training, you used to have to hop on a bike, like an exercise bike, that was facing the wall, just facing the wall and just cycling away. Another, it was yeah, a heap of punishments on already on top of a really tough pre-season. And, and looking back, there's definitely better strategies to, to manage uh, blokes overeating, but all us fat club boys, which was mostly front rowers, I was never alone uh, in fat club. But yeah, we look back and have a laugh. But yeah, it could have been done, done and handled a bit better. And how, and probably help us prevent us getting in fat club would have been, um, yeah, would have been great. But yeah, down about 100, 102 kilos now. Even the try hard gyms now know that to make somebody want to ride an exercise bike, they put screens in front of them to look like they're riding on a road, they're riding through scenery, and you end up not thinking about uh, pedalling just into a brick wall in front of you, that view. So even they've nutted it out to make it voluntary to want to go and ride that exercise bike. Yeah, and I mean, it's boring just to run on a treadmill and not look at anything. So I guess if you're watching some Seinfeld or a bit of telly or something, it yeah. helps pass the time. So you're sort of killing two birds with one stone. I sort of reading books on treadmills sometimes. So, so tell us, um, uh, what age were you in America and were you a large youngster as well? Did they try and get you into, like at school level, did they try and get you to be, you know, a, a, a lineman or anything like that? Were you earmarked for the local... Um, NFL style football, or were you too young? No, no, I was too young. So yeah. I think I was uh, probably eight till I was 11, so okay. I was still pretty young. I mean, I was a big kid, and my parents used to have to lock the pantry, and <laughs> I had a nickname Gobbles there for a while. So, um, yeah, <laughs> lock the pantry is that true? But no, I mean, yeah, yeah, lock the pantry, yeah, yeah, apparently. Yeah, for a while. So I know, I just loved, loved eating. Yeah. Absolutely loved What's eating. your favourite? So becoming a front row in rugby union. Uh, now, now's Messina ice cream. Oh, it's good, isn't it? Messina. Yeah, it's so, very, very good. Oh, it's best. I met a guy, uh, we, we used to have guys come out to train with us and some of them, you know, would... would went back to uni to further their career after NFL careers, you know, the American lineman. And we had one bloke who made the Hall of Fame. His name was John Kolb, and he was a lineman. And he was – he'd trimmed down to, I think, 240 pounds, he called it. But he just said he was encouraged to eat everything that he could, get into the gym – and just push weights and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And he, he said he played at about 280 pounds because all he had to do was snap the ball between his legs, look forward, push and protect. And, and he never actually got into a sprint or a run. So they were encouraged to eat everything. So it's, it's, it's unusual, the big guys in different sports, whether they are uh, encouraged or dissuaded to eat and eat and eat. Yeah, and we sort of, uh, there's sort of two different styles of rugby. There's a super rugby competition, which is just Australia and New Zealand now. And that that tournament's very fast. 
uh, and you've got to be really fit and we try and play a really expansive game and um, you know, so we're always yeah, generally fitter. But when you go to play the European sides and you go play for Wallabies, uh, the games are not as fast and they're much more a, a physical battle, yeah. especially when you play the South Africans and the English and they love a big scrum battle. So it was yeah, tricky at times. You'd be trying to get fit for the first half of the year for for Super Rugby and then you'd get to the second half of the year where if, you, if you're lucky to make the Wallabies, you've then got to try and put on muscle and get get big and str- or bigger and stronger to then scrum against sort of the European powerhouses, the French, the Italians, the the English who love us who love a big scrum. So that I always found that a huge one probably the hardest challenge of my of, of, of playing there yeah, for me was trying to balance and um, try and be I guess I tried to be good at both and and sort of spread myself too thin, I guess, if that's sort of making sense. It was yeah, definitely got felt I got pulled in between two sort of styles of play. Um, so what I'm hearing already, Ben, is you, a, f- a fellow who, who loves his food, loves his tucker, and could put on weight easily. And from a young age, you're already starting to be guided towards what is wrong, what is right with eating. And then even as an adult for your professional career, in season, you have to tailor your diet. It's been pulled one way at the start and then another way later in the season to tailor your body to the circumstances. What did all this dietary information intake, that's right, no, that's wrong, oh, you've, you've tripped the line there again, did that do anything to you emotionally? Uh, I think from a young age I sort of developed that habit of eating to deal with stress. Um, but one thing, and, and that was stressful, you know, trying to get fit for one competition and then you get selected and you're like, geez, you're not big enough, Ben, you've got to get even bigger for the second half of the year. And yo-yo in between there was really frustrating and hard, but I guess one thing it did was it taught me a lot about nutrition. Uh, and it's, and that's a big reason why I've lost all my weight in retirement. I'm yep. still active, not as physically active as when I was playing, but, uh, yeah, it, it did give me a bit of a crash course. Uh, in you know how to put on and lose weight, um, and yeah, I'm very I'm actually looking back really glad I went through it and learned all that. And I wish yeah I wish I learned more about sort of the basics of nutrition rather than oh that's healthy and that's bad. Um, learning sort of learning to see food as energy and how much energy is in food. Um, I think's been a really valuable learning experience for me. And I now I look at a bowl of food or a plate of food and I know oh, that's roughly eight, 900 calories. Um, I only need 700 or eight, 500 this morning and, or whatever. Uh, and being able to sort of make meal decisions that way is, um, yeah, a big part of why I've been able to lose the weight in retirement. Now, we're just about ready for a break, but on the other side of the break, I'm going to get you to tell me about the business you've set up. But, but my own son, he, he now has put a little mini scales in the kitchen. He's into his bodybuilding and all that stuff, you know, the younger generation of body beautiful stuff. So he weighs his food before he he, he, he shovels it down his throat. Um, but you, you've gone into a business which assists people. You You've also had some pretty tumultuous struggles in your life which you regularly blog about so if you can just sum that up for in a half a minute or so and then we'll talk about it and flesh it out on the other side of the break if that's okay yeah so the business is a uh, it's called alfred and it's a calorie counting service so you alfred we count people's yep and we count people's calories for them they just send us a photo or if they forget 
to take a photo. They can just send us a text to the meal and we have nutrition students that calculate the calories for you. So uh, just a less extreme version of my fitness pal. And then uh, just in retirement like that, that was what I retired to do because I'd started doing it while I was playing, but yep. I've just had a ton of problems trying to make it happen. Uh, and then the, so I owned a, a pub here in Canberra called The Dock, uh, which was going really well when I retired and that was sort of the backup plan. But then COVID, obviously as COVID's done through a fair spanner in, you know, a lot of businesses, especially hospitality, and yeah. uh, the stresses from that was was crippling at times the last few years. But as, as all Victorians would know. We'll chat about that on the other side of the break. I'm Dermot Burden, and our guest is Ben Alexander. This is the conversations that could for Are You OK? Brought to you by Dare Ice Coffee. Dare Ice Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? The conversations that could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could. I'm Dermot Brereton and our guest tonight is Ben Alexander, now retired rugby union champion player with more than 150 games with the ACT Brumbies and 72 tests for the Wallabies. Ben, was it, was it a snap decision due to your injuries or, or a slow realisation that you couldn't keep playing anymore and you transitioned into what you were doing now? Yeah, so there's, there's three reasons. One was um, I, I knew what I wanted to do when I retired. So I'd been working on Alfred uh, for a couple of years before retiring. So that had been sort of a little side project. And I was like, yeah, I really could see myself doing this when I retired. So I had that, there's that. Uh, but then two other things happened. One, I was chatting to the Brums about extending it, and I'd had my third kid, and I just was really struggling at training, keeping up with all the young young fellas. And what didn't have my best season my last season? Uh, so I'd had a chat with the Brums uh, head coach, and Dan McKellar was saying, Benny, mate, like I think yeah, he, he suggested it's probably your time is, is coming is coming close to an end. You'd had a great great career, at Brums. Uh, so there was that conversation, but and the thing I that can... really kept. If I can interject there, and with knowledge of this, kids change your the attitude you have to be elite at sport when kids come along, and it's a beautiful reason, but kids change your attitude to the live all for your sport, even though it's your profession, when you get kids in your life. Yeah, and I think you can almost point it to a T. When a bloke has their second or third kid, um, the performance, it's just, there's just so much on your plate. Any, any parent would know when you have your first child, it's kind of actually, I say a lot of players end up playing better when they have a kid, it just forces them into routine and focus. Yep. But especially when a few of my mates, when everyone's had their second, third, uh, kids, that's when the performance does start to drop. Uh, it's just inevitable. Uh, so there was that conversation, but then my grandmother, who I was really close with, uh, my, my father's mum. Uh, she was diagnosed, this is a, a week before that conversation with the Brumbies, I had a conversation, yeah, my grandmother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and given only you know, a month to live. Yeah, wow. And she started giving out adv advice to everyone in the family, you know, told my dad to sort his health out, told his sister something else. Uh, but she told me to quit while I was ahead with my footy, that I'd had a great career and that my body was in one piece. Um, How old was she? So I'd had that conversation with uh, Nat, grandma was 18. She, was, she died two days short of her 90th. Yeah, wow. Wow. And, but the, yeah, so I had that conversation literally the week before. I was I was deciding whether to play another year uh, or to go overseas, but then 
having that conversation with grandma and then the next week having the conversation with the Brumbies combined with knowing what I wanted to do, uh, it made the decision still bloody hard, uh, but it, it was straightforward. Yeah, one, once you realise that decision and you find the reasons that just get to 51% outweighing the 49, it, the decision's pretty easy pretty quickly, isn't it? Yeah, it was very clear, very clear. I only decided the day before. Right? So I hadn't even considered retiring. And then after that conversation with Brum, Brumbies and Grandma and knowing what I wanted to do, I felt, yep, it's just time to move on. Like Grandma said, quit while I was ahead. If I got injured, you know, playing another year or two, um, it just, yeah, would have tarnished how I would have looked back on the, on the game if I'd, yeah. you know, done a, a serious injury that would have impacted my ability to provide for my family uh, into the future. So, uh, but it was still bloody hard uh, that first few weeks and then grandma died, you know, a few weeks after that. Um, and she was the first grandparent I ever lost, anyone close to me I ever lost. Uh, so I had a really, yeah, really tough month um, after that. But uh, we can, we, yeah, we can take this conversation wherever you want, Dermot. Yeah. So first of all, ten, even though it's a, a decade ago, um, well, not a decade ago, a, a few short years ago. Condolences for your, your your grandmother there. She obviously was very close and important to you. Um, you mentioned the coach was respectful as to where you sat and he viewed your life and he had an inkling, you suggested then, that what was upcoming. Uh, did you get much support transitioning into humble, everyday citizen, Joe Citizen life? Yeah, the Brumbies have been awesome. So I'm still involved. I'm on the board uh, of the Brums. And Dan McKellar was the coach at the time, and then he he handled it really well. Like, Dan and I were really good mates. Uh, he just finished his first year as head coach. We'd been friends for a very long time. Uh, and he was awesome in how he handled it. He had Coaches have got to do the, what's right for the team. And I just, you know, I hadn't had my best season. Uh, and I'd been a great servant for the club, but my time was up. And so Dan handled that awesome. And really highlighted to me what a great coach he's now coaching at the wallabies uh, and it really highlighted to me yeah this guy's going to be an awesome coach he's making a hard decision to move on a, a loyal you know good servant of the club but it was time uh and dan uh well i had the shits with him for a year or so i've, I've come to le- <laughs> like as we do with, with, with the benefit of time realize that dan absolutely made the right decision and that was a big I, I think showed to me why he's become you know the best super rugby coach in australia and uh, why he'll be a future Wallaby coach. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was awesome. He was awesome, uh, as hard as that was. But then I really hit a brick wall at the end of the last year. I just, the two years of the pandemic, just trying to get our business going. Um, so I just keep the dock going through all the lockdowns uh, and trying to get my business, Alfred, up and running. Uh, and I'd made some bets around that. Um and just end of last year, I hit a wall. I ran out of power. I was so, I, and I felt for the first time in my life, I was depressed. Uh, but the Brumbies, the. How did the you identify advisor, that? How did you identify I am depressed? Well, most people say, oh, I'm feeling a bit down. I'll fight through. How did you, I mean, clearly reading your bio, you're a very well educated uh, person. What were the identifying moments that you went, I am depressed? I didn't know what, well, I didn't know so depressed. I did not know what to do. And I always thought, 
you know, if you sleep well, eat well, exercise, you can sort of keep things at bay. But we got to the end of last year and I was like, it's been a, two years. I still haven't got Alfred going the way I want it going. Um, and I just, I felt like crook. Like I've, I felt like my, my battery for life was empty and I didn't know ever how to recharge it. Like, whereas in the past when I'm a bit tired down, I know, yeah, I'll just sleep it off or I'll just have a day off or whatever. Like I, I think, yeah, the real point was key point was I didn't know if my battery would ever recharge. That's how I felt. I was thinking, I'm in a big hole here. I have no energy to do anything. Can barely get out of bed. I've got, you know, three kids running around. Got, got my wife to help with her work. Like, I just had so much on my plate, and I just didn't feel I had the energy to deal with any of it. Um, and I reached out to Robin Duff, who's our player welfare manager at the Brums, and she was awesome. Her and I went for a lot of walks. She put me in touch with a psychologist. Um, here in Canberra, and, and that was a big part of uh, me starting to get better. How, how important was the reach out, and how difficult was it for a man such as yourself? I, I, let me say, with all the endearment I can, a monster of a man, a huge man who everybody will look at in life and go, "He's got the answers. Look how powerful he is. He is the ultimate macho Australian." How difficult is it to reach out, and was that the moment you think things started to change? Absolutely asking for help was the moment things started to change. So it was first telling my wife, I'm struggling. I broke down in tears, crying in front of my children. It's the only time I've ever done that. Uh, and that's when my wife was like, oh, okay, something's not right. Uh, and so she's like, so we, we talked for about a day, just talked about everything. So she was across it. Uh, and then we're like, all right, well, you know, she doesn't have all the answers. And so I then she suggested I reach out to a friend, someone uh, the dungeon bard, Don Miller, dear friend uh, and mentor. So I reached out to him. My, my dad was, my parents were over in Europe visiting my sister. Uh, and one evening, yeah, I just, I didn't know what to do. So I called Dom and, and my book, well, his dad was away and I didn't want to bother him on holidays. But then my wife and Dom said, you really do need to call your dad. Uh, called him and my dad booked his flight and came home from Switzerland the next day. Uh, came to Canberra and uh, my brother and then my dad and my brothers. We just started walking each morning, and I just started talking about everything that was in my head and everything that was on my plate. Um, and we didn't solve it all that day, but just walking, uh, walking and talking about everything that was in my head helped me to get out of. Well, helped me one to get everything out of my head. And once that did, I just started feeling a little bit better. I went from feeling a zero out of ten to maybe a one or two out of ten. And then when I felt the sort of a two out of 10, I then called Robin uh, at the Brumbies uh, and her and I went for some more walks and Robin went from helping me to feeling maybe a two out of 10 to a three out of 10. So it was gradual. And then it, it was gradual, absolutely it was gradual. And, I, and I'm just so lucky I had people to help me get from that zero to a one. And that was my wife and my dad and my friend Dom. They helped me get from a zero to one. We had to move house as well during all that. That was, I had that going on and all my mates came and helped me move. Um, can I can I ask there? Yeah. Could I could I get really personal? Did you move house because because the business struggled during the COVID? If I can ask it, was it financial pressure that made you move house? I mean, that would be on top of it as well. That had hurt. Yes, we sold our home before the pandemic, uh, making plans, and then uh, obviously, yeah, things changed. The property market. Um, 
And yeah, the, as I alluded to before, the bet that I'd made, yeah. uh, that my wife and I made, uh, didn't pay off. And our backup plan with with the pub, uh, it went from you know doing a great trade to to being closed uh, and being on JobKeeper, and, and that was a huge part of the stress. But there was other stuff. But that, yeah, the financial pressure of the lockdowns added to a really risky bet that I've made in trying to get this new business up and running in retirement. Uh, but yeah, that was that was a huge part of it. Uh, the financial pressure of that, but just very grateful all those people helped me get to a three. And then Robin suggested I go see a sports psychologist uh, here in Canberra called Gaylene Clues. She's worked with Lauren Jackson and done a lot of work rugby league. Very, uh, really well known, really respected um, psychologist. And then from a few chats with her, uh, she got me probably from a three to a five over about the course of a month. Uh, and then yeah. Then we started making a few. I went and got a, a, a normal, a, a stable job uh, working at KPMG here in Canberra, and that's been awesome. And that helped me get from a five to probably a nine, eight or nine most days. Uh, and once I started feeling around eight or nine, I started writing again. So I'd started writing uh, in the first lockdown. That's when I first started my blog, uh, just more as a, a self development tool around communicating because uh, I'd. Yeah, that long story before that, but I, yeah, but yeah, that's how the blog started. And then just once, yeah, after my energy levels returned, I thought, oh, time to start writing again. And, and I started, yeah, writing about this recovery process, and that's hence why now it's called struggling. Um, yeah, was it cathartic for you to write the blog? Awesome. Just get stuff out of my head, and I feel like if what I've gone through can just help one person then it's worth all the effort. What about the exhilaration of playing elite sport at world-class level, Australia v England, South Africa, France? And uh, you, you probably – you sound like somebody, you know, you said you made the bet <laughs> to, to move on with life and, and it sounds like inherently you have a bit of risk-taker about you. And it would sound then that as a sportsman, you love the exhilaration of the risk. And you're 120 kilo forward who gets exhilarated by 120 kilo forward in opposition, trying to push your shoulder down to your, <laughs> through your body to your hip and trying to break you, you know, so many times per game. That's exhilarating. That danger element of the contact is exhilarating. And it's also something that can be adrenaline pumping. And then when it finishes, how did that leave you feeling? You know, I wish I realised that before I retired, how much addicted as all professional athletes get to the adrenaline and the excitement. And I wanted to have a second career that was as exciting. Uh, and I've finally come to realise that I'm not, but that's okay. And now I'm really, instead of trying to find an exciting career, I'm trying to, uh, yeah, I've accepted that I can't have a career that's as exciting, but I can have one that's infinitely more meaningful. Uh, and by helping people who are struggling, uh, and especially yeah, helping people who struggle with they eat, uh, with their eating like I did. Uh, and I, you know, I used to beat myself up for what I eat, and I don't now. And a lot of it's come from this nutrition education I got from tracking what I eat and, and dropping some kilos. Um, so yeah, I wish yeah what you just said, Dermot. I wish I knew that when I retired. And I think all athletes need to know that when you retire, yeah, your brain has been wired a certain way to exceed 
to you know, to seek excitement of uh, pursuit of a goal of winning a grand AFL grand final for a hundred thousand people, and you know, you, you our brains are trained to push through shit and tra- and and sweat and training hard to in this pursuit of this goal, and when you get it, it is unbelievably exciting, uh, and just. I hope all sports start to just educate players a bit better that there's a, our brains, there is sort of a neurochemical, um, what's the word, adaptation or whatever. Our brains do become shaped in a way. Uh, and if we can just help people, then that's fine, but it just help people be more aware of it and and how that the brain-seeking excitements in, ret- in retirement can influence decisions that they make. Like you said, I, I took a big, big risk. And it was my brain was seeking something exciting, um, but uh, I'm still trying to do the same thing. But I'm, instead of focusing on the excitement and trying to make it grow and become big and help millions of people, I'm just trying to focus on it being meaningful for for a few people. And I found focusing yeah on, on finding meaning instead of excitement is is really keeping me in good stead. I'm Dermot Burton, and our guest tonight is former rugby union champ Ben Alexander. This is the Conversations That Could, brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Ben, you touched on it before the break, the conditioning of a sportsman's brain. I, I know that the, the way, for myself, having played, I used to always feel like the, the blokes who weren't as robust in my area, I had to protect them. And I was wired to protect them at the expense of my own body. And after retiring, I couldn't help. But if I saw somebody being spoken to in a bad way, if I saw somebody uh, um, road raging someone else, I would have to pull over. I would have to interject. I felt like I had to protect. And that's the way I was wired for 15 years in professional sport. You've talked about, you, you touched on the wiring emotionally, mentally of a sports person and especially robust, really rugged football contact sports. Yeah, big time. And for me, like just life and retirement, big part of it now is learning to sit at a desk all day and staring at a computer and, and use my brain in a productive way. Uh, and that's not as exciting, but that's, what I've got to do now and understanding, yeah, what I've got to do to be able to do that. So I have to go for a run in the morning before a day, um, before a day at a computer, right? And I have to have a good night's sleep. A lot of similar stuff to, to footy, but I need to have a good night's sleep. I can't have sugar before I sit down at a desk. Otherwise, you know, I, I get really focused and then. That's my um, problem. I, I, yeah, I just, yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are the same. You, you have a bit of sugar and it'll spark you up, but then 20 minutes later, half hour later, you can't keep focusing and then you go looking for food. I mean, some of those systems that have been implemented into various sportsmen, such as yourself, who is a robust player, just the amount of poundage you were expected to put onto the opposition every time you went out there to physically... Uh, no, not hurt them, but punish them into submission so your team could win, have a better chance of winning, to try and back away from that in in life after you retire is a very difficult process to make. Massively. And, like, I didn't realise until I retired how important routine is. Like, the, for the first few weeks, once, you know, our routine, our weekly schedule's handed to you, you know, turn up to training, you're doing this, this, this. You don't even need to think about it. But when you're not not a sports, per- or a sports person, you've got to 
I guess if you've got a, a personal assistant, they can still they can schedule your week for you. But for the rest of us, uh, I found that really hard trying to schedule out my week. Uh, that's a lot requiring my brain to to do things that it's never done before. I'd never considered what's it like to schedule a week. Uh, I've always had it done for me. So that that was a huge uh, part of wiring, or just not rewiring, but training my brain that yeah, Ben, look, this is a You've got to do this each week. It only takes 10 minutes, but just spend a bit of time thinking about what you're doing this week. That was, I guess, a part of the rewiring or retraining of my brain. But um, a lot of it's just been mindful, learning to be mindful of that, what you alluded to before, that my brain keeps craving excitement. And I definitely caught myself in the past making decisions, trying to seek excitement, something that sounds new or exciting. Yeah. Yeah, your brain just, oh, that, that sounds new. That sounds exciting, like, you know, cryptocurrency or something. Uh, that sounds exciting. I'll go have a look at that. And, and it's, it's, yeah, I never realised how much of it was the subconscious part of my brain uh, seeking excitement that it, it got from professional sport. Uh, so that, yeah, that's, um, I think that's the hardest thing for, for athletes. And But accepting that that's okay, that, that's totally natural. I think everyone goes through it. Uh, but try to instead of rewire or having your brain wired for excitement, try and rewire it to seek meaning. Like how you were saying you were trying to help someone uh, that was being abused on the road or something like that. That I think uh, is for me the best and most healthiest way to to do that rewiring is to instead of seek excitement, seek seek meaning uh, in work. So you recognised the down moments in your own life and you were able to self-assess to a, a, a various degree. You played with some wonderful players in a wonderful era and, and I can remember watching a big fella by the name of Dan Vickerman, the big V. Uh, you played side by side with him and uh, well, I'll, with your permission, would you be willing to talk about him and could you tell us about Dan Vickerman, what he meant to you and, and his unfortunate demise? Yeah, so Vicks, I was lucky to play the 2011 Rugby World Cup with Vicks. Him and I had a similar injury. We both had snapped our legs in half and we had to get metal poles uh, put inside our tibias to, yeah, yep. to keep our legs straight. And I was lucky that I'd had it sort of six or seven years earlier and I'd had the pole out and made a full recovery. But big Vicks had to play that 2011 World Cup with the pole inside his leg and it was causing him a ton of pain. But he still played the absolute house down. And him and I just bonded over that. He played for the Waratahs. Um, I played for Brumbies. So we didn't play provincially together, but we yeah, played uh, Wallabies together. We, we just talked a lot about it. Uh, and he was always asking me a lot of questions going, oh, you know, does it hurt your knee? He was, yeah, you, you could tell it was really causing him a lot of grief. And then when he retired, I think, I think he retired the year after the World Cup. Sadly, I don't think he was able, he ever fully recovered from that injury. Uh, and in 2017, uh, he sadly uh, took his own life, uh, leaving behind a wife and two kids. And that was really a wake-up call f for me to deal with. I didn't know I had mental health issues, but I just you know, knew I didn't feel right sometimes. And so that sort of fixes passing certainly gave me, I mean, it was a shock. Um, and I had seen him a few months earlier. He came down to Canberra and he came to the dock, to my pub, to the pub, to as a part of a, a past players reunion and, and, he, and he'd had a bit to drink and I looked at him and tried to talk, but he couldn't even talk. And so like looking back, there were some warning signs and I wished, you know, I sort of wished, was there something I could have said to Vicks uh, that night at the dock that may, maybe helped him or offered him help or support or something? Not, not, um, to, not, not, not to 
dwell on it, but for people out there, what were the signs you saw in him that night that maybe somebody who's listening now might recognise in a mate who they think is going through a similar emotional crisis? Uh, he couldn't talk. He'd drunk, drinking heavily uh, and he'd put on, yeah, a lot of weight, a lot of weight. Yeah, he was always really fit, super lean, and it just it almost didn't look like the same person. So it was, yeah, I just, you'll be right, Vic. So I, I can't remember what I said. I didn't really say Footballers are like that. Could... Yeah, footballers are like yeah, that. Yeah. You'll be right, mate. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to be yeah. better, don't we? Yeah, and so he's clearly struggling. And I, yeah, wish I said something, but end of the day, I didn't. Um, and maybe even when, no matter what I said, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have made any difference. But yeah, Vic, that was such a shock and so sad. And that sort of yeah prompted me to start doing research on learning about um, mental health and just no, uh, well, just yeah, on YouTube and learning about how neurochemicals work in the brain. And um, so I felt I had a pretty good understanding of you know what cause, makes you feel crap. You have your serotonin gets low. Um, you know, you're not getting oxytocin from spending time with friends and family or you're not uh, exercising to get endorphins. So I sort of had a real basic understanding of how those neurochemicals work and how they make us think and feel. But I guess that's what added to my depression was I felt like I knew how to look after myself and my brain, but to still get depressed, that's when I really made me feel really desperate uh, and, and yeah, feel really hopeless. Um was that despite knowing all that, I still wound up depressed uh, a few years. One of the things I want to take you back to, and as, as a tool, you mentioned the first thing you started was walking with somebody true and trusted, family members first, then the, uh, the, the, the clinical help, you went for walks. Tiny little things like I'll go for a walk and we go through the bush tracks along the bay but they're one man wide. So you don't tend to talk that much because you're behind the person in front. You can kind of talk. I would think it's even beneficial just to walk somewhere where you can walk side by side. Tiny little things like that, I would imagine, are a help. Absolutely. And so the, the pub, we sponsor a weekly run called Running for Resilience here in Canberra. Um, and Matt Breen, the guy that started it, uh, his dad sadly committed suicide 10 years earlier. Uh, and he reached out. Uh, his mum was uh, his mum was diagnosed with uh, very serious ovarian cancer, and he wanted to start a weekly run just to promote mental health and and, and build community. And we said, yeah, the doc, yeah, we'll sponsor it. We'll shout everyone a beer that does it. Uh, and so that started uh, just before the pandemic, and it's now built up to it's Monday and Friday mornings as well. So it's three times a week now, and we have over 100 people come every Wednesday night. At the dock? And at, the, at the dock, so it's called Running for Resilience. And we say before each run, we say tough times don't last, and the best thing you can do is to be active with mates and just keep moving. Yeah. And even if it's not running, but just moving, doing movement with friends is the best thing you can do today for your mental health. I just, I still, yeah, don't, yeah. Well, mate, uh, before we let you go, give us a, a, a plug again on your blog. How do we get to and read your blog, which is seriously interesting, illuminating and, and really educational? It's just called Struggling by Ben Alexander. It's on the website substack.com. So benalexander.substack.com. Just search Struggling by Ben Alexander. Thanks, Ben. What an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Uh, awesome. Thanks, Dermot. It's great to meet you, mate. And if you're ever in the nation's capital, mate, reach out. Love to shout your beer. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the conversations that could for Are You OK and you'd like to share it with a friend or access the resources in our show notes, subscribe to the podcast of The Conversations That Could wherever you listen to podcasts. If our conversation tonight has raised some issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14, 24 hours a day or contact Beyond Blue 1300 22 46 36. I'm Dermot Brereton, and we'll be back next week. And remember, when your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Thanks for listening. The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay?